Hello and welcome to Annual Reviews Audio, part of the conversation series from Annual Reviews, where insightful research begins. I'm your host, Anaraskwat Paz. In each episode of our show, we feature top scientists in fields ranging from astrophysics to sociology. Oliver Smithies is the Weatherspoon Eminent Distinguished Professor of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Along with Mario Capecchi and Martin Evans, Dr. Smithies was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 2007 for his contributions to the development of gene targeting using homologous recombination in embryonic stem cells. This technique has had an immense impact on biomedical research over the past two decades. Dr. Smithies has had a long and distinguished career as a researcher and mentor. Here, he engages in an entertaining and enlightening discussion of his life in science with Dr. Kaufman, professor of medicine at Duke University. Hello, uh, my name is Tom Kaufman. I'm a professor of medicine at Duke University, and it's my pleasure and privilege to be here today to talk to Oliver Smithies about his life in science. Oliver is the excellence professor of pathology at University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. And Oliver, maybe we'll we'll start at the beginning, and, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe you could say a few words about your family and how you got interested in science in the first place. Yeah, well, I, I uh, was born a long time ago, now 1925, <laughs> so I'm 88 now. Uh-huh. And um, uh, I, I was born in a little village, uh, Copley, uh, in the no- north of England, uh, in Yorkshire. Uh, and um, I was a twin. I, I was the older of the two of us by four hours, which uh, we never let my brother forget. <laughs> and um, I had a sister who was five years younger. My, my father was an insurance salesman, and my mother taught English at the local um, uh, technical college, uh, English and English literature. Um, so they debated, I think, when we were young about whether to let us go to the little uh, primary school in Copley. And they said, oh, yeah, just go in the ordinary way. And they didn't mm-hmm. make any fuss, as it were. And so I, uh, from age 5 to 11, I went to this elementary school. And I'm actually a little side burn on that one, as it were, because uh, uh, two, three years ago they invited me back uh, to this little village school, and they unveiled the plaque saying, Oliver Smithies was a student here from age five to eleven, oh, and then they took pictures of me with all of these kids, five-year-olds. So anyway, they, uh, from there, you uh, the, in England at that time, you took an intelligence test at age eleven, and uh, uh, then you could get to the uh, the grammar school, that was the high school, uh, which was quite small um, because the incoming classes, there were two parallel classes, 30 students each, so mm-hmm. for, that was at a nearby town, 100,000, so there was only one grammar school, one really good high school, and uh, my brother and I got in there, and uh, so then I was uh, at, uh, at that school, which is an old, old school, uh, Elizabethan Grammar School, wow. uh, 1563 or something like that. So it had been around a while. Yeah. And um, they, they, were, they were good teachers. And uh, well, I remember the math teacher particularly. Uh, he wasn't a nice man, and nobody liked him. I didn't like him, but he really loved maths. And so I, I got a good training in maths, and I got, uh, I got a scholarship to Oxford from there. 
but uh, before I go on, I've got to tell you that that little village of Copley, if you walk five miles up the road, up, up the river, you come to a, a bigger town, 15,000, and it has two Nobel laureates. So there's something there good about the water. Something in the <laughs> water. Decided, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> anyway, uh, then I went to, uh, um, to Oxford as a student, and I got, I got my scholarship in physics, but for some reason that I still don't remember, and I decided to, to enter medical school. So I did a couple of years of medical school, and then I got introduced into what we now know as molecular biology. It wasn't called that at that time, there wasn't any name for it, and uh, decided to do a PhD in, uh, in, in what would now be molecular biology. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, then, I, so I, I took a chemistry degree as well at that point because I thought I needed to have biology and chemistry. I think that was a very fortunate uh, decision because then I was comfortable with either chemistry or biology and, and that's a nice combination. Mm -hmm. and, and then things went from there as it were. <laughs> And, and so how, how long did you spend in Oxford? Altogether eight years, yeah. so quite a long time. Okay. And From it, age eight, 18 or thereabouts, yeah. 26. Then. And is that where you worked with Sandy? Um, yes, San, Sandy Ogston was the person okay. who, who uh, uh, interviewed me to get into the college and then was my uh, tutor and then later my thesis advisor. And, and I, I, know long, had, long yeah, I know he had a major friend. impact yeah, on your... Yeah, uh, yeah. Huge uh, impact, yeah. 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 And uh, so, f so from there, you how did the... Well, the time came for a postdoc, you right. see, and, uh, and we had a visiting scholar, a Rhodes scholar from Wisconsin, uh, Buzz Baldwin was his name, and, mm -hmm. and we talked about where to go, and he, he said, you ought to go to the States, and I... I, I I don't like Americans very much. <laughs> and, and, and Sandy said, well, all the more reason you should go because of that stupid sort of remark. And so eventually I decided to go to Wisconsin and, and did a couple of years there in, in physical chemistry and then went to Canada. And is there a bit of a story about how you got from Canada? Or, or, uh, yeah, well, uh, going to Canada was because I got engaged to an American okay. uh, girl who I later yeah. married, much yeah. my first wife, and um, I couldn't I couldn't go back to in, in, uh, I, I couldn't stay in the states because of mm -hmm. my visa mm -hmm. and the arrangement of the fellowship that I come on. And uh, she didn't want to go to England, and so we compromised on Canada, okay. and I went to Canada and. Um, and uh, I got a job with uh, in the Connaught Medical Research mm -hmm. Laboratory. It's a rather strange institution, as it were. It was founded in World War I uh, with a mandate to produce biological products not readily available for sale in Canada, that's in its quotation mark, mm -hmm. and to carry out medical research. And they made, uh, World War One. they made uh, tetanus antitoxin, you see, for the French warfare. And then in 1928, 22, thereabouts, insulin was discovered in Toronto. And so then they began to make insulin, for example. And then in World War Two, they made penicillin. And they made, the, they grew the virus 
uh, that Salk used for his vaccine. That, that live virus was shipped uh, by truck <laughs> to Pennsylvania, where Salk was uh, working. Probably couldn't do that today. No, he wouldn't be able to do that now. Not in, those, not in that way. Anyway. And um, so, uh, but uh, then I, w I was on the research side and, and my, uh, the person with whom I went to work said you can work on anything you like as long as you've got something to do with insulin. So I began to work on ins towards uh, looking for a precursor of insulin, which I never found. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, then, and then, just by, by chance, as it were, out of curiosity, I suppose, I, I looked at plasma and I, and I found I could get in, uh, many more proteins I could see than people were describing in plasma. So I quit working on insulin with the blessing of, of Scotty, who was my boss, David Scott, and uh, then I discovered the genetic difference there, and that moved me into genetics. Some people may not be aware of, of your uh, uh, contribution in the development of, of uh, uh, starch gel electrophoresis, yeah, and, and as, as a part, I know as a part of that project. So maybe that, that's another sort of interesting. Well, I mean, uh, it, it is. Uh, it's, development um, it, it was the first high resolution uh, gel system that separated proteins. To, uh, with a big element of size mm -hmm. uh, in it, but it was accidental as far as that was concerned. I didn't know it was going to do that, and I just used, uh, I, I found starch because I'd been trying to separate insulin, and when it was, uh, you uh, with the supporting medium was a, a filter paper, you had a, a filter paper strip soaked with buffer, and put your protein on, and then pass a current, and then separate the proteins and insulin just stuck to the paper mm. and I was very frustrated about it and um, and then I saw uh, at the local hospital for sick children they were using a method which was rather like a sandbox they had a box well it's got a big box something about this big and this wide and maybe that deep mm. but not full of sand full of starch grains starch powder Mm -hmm. And then the buffer was surrounding the starch powder, and your protein would migrate around the starch grains, not through them. Mm -hmm. And when you were ready to find out where it was, where the proteins were, you had to cut the thing into 40 slices and do a protein stain on, a, a protein uh, determination on every slice. Terribly laborious. Mm -hmm. But proteins didn't stick to it. And I don't. And then I remembered helping my mother do the laundry when I was a kid. Well, I don't know whether helping it should be a quote, but um, that if you cook the starch, it made a jelly. And I thought if I make a jelly out of it, mm -hmm. then I won't have to do the cutting. All I can do is stain it, and it worked. It worked pretty well. But it turned out to be more powerful than that because. Mm -hmm. The gel didn't form until it was a high concentration of starch, about 15%. And then it began to separate molecules by size. Mm. And, and that's when, where the molecular sieving came. And polyacrylamide was a direct descendant. <laughs> Somebody tried to use a, a different gel instead of mm -hmm. starch. Mm -hmm. But it really did change the yeah, ability well, it, to, it, to it distinguish made, it protein It made a big sizes. impact, yeah. yeah. And all sorts of genetic... Um, Differences were found using the method, and yeah. they still are for that matter. But it, they don't use starch anymore, they use polyacrylamide. Sure. And I use polyacrylamide. It, it, it was your application of that method to analyzing plasma proteins that, that 
uncovered these genetic differences. Yes, that's right. right. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, I wasn't expecting it, yeah. but yeah. I remember uh, I was about ready to publish, and I'd been running samples for myself and my two friends. I had two uh, guys who I knew who were graduate students, and mm -hmm. I would bleed, get them to give me blood. And so I'd been running these samples, and, and then one day, just before I was ready to publish, I ran another sample, and... It was from a girl, and uh, the pattern was different. And I thought I'd found a difference between males and females. <laughs> and it, it held up for a few days. You know, I did a man and woman, though always they separated, and then they got they It turned out to be nothing to do with gender. Was that that was sort of your entry entryway into, into getting genetics, interested in genetics? Yeah, yeah. Uh, which yeah. I learned really. Uh, yeah. From uh, I was taught um, practical human genetics by Norma Ford Walker. She mm -hmm. was in the hospital for sick children, which was mm -hmm. where I'd been looking mm -hmm. at the starch grain electrophoresis. Mm -hmm. And um, she was a remarkable lady. She, she was probably, I don't know what age she was then, she seemed uh, fairly old. She was white-haired. <laughs> she was probably young compared to me. But, uh, anyway... Um, she was uh, uh, she was uh, remarkable because she was head of a department of genetics, and there were almost none in the country, in, in the world, for that matter. In 1955, we're talking about, mm -hmm. and she was a woman and a PhD, head of a department in a hospital. I mean, that's pretty, pretty special. And she and we worked on the genetics together. And, and all that was while you were in Toronto. Yes, all this, that's this right. And then I began. To, then my two friends, who had uh, been graduate students, had gone away and done postdocs, and they both, as it, as it happened, came back to th Toronto uh, after their postdocs, mm -hmm. and we collaborated then on working out what the difference was in, in the genetic difference that we'd mm -hmm. found, because. Uh, at that time, nobody had. There was only one protein where the genetic difference was known, and that was hemoglobin, mm -hmm. sickle cell, than in Ingram's work. And uh, and our the pattern of, of that we were seeing was more complicated, and it turned out to be very interesting because uh, the 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 gene had basically two forms. One form made a, 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 a subunit that was, I don't remember the exact length, but let's say it was 200 amino acids long. And the other gene, the other variant of the gene made a one that was about uh, nearly 400 long. It mm. was two together. And uh, so the gene had uh, changed from one copy, to, as it were, together. It had had a, a, a strange event that made two copies, and it was had duplicated now, so the partial duplication. And that led to all sorts of neat things, because then we learned that crossing over would occur wherever DNA was the same. It wouldn't necessarily be... It's hard to do with my hands quite, but crossing over like that, it would be if you crossed over there because these two are identical, you would call that homologous crossing mm -hmm. over because mm -hmm. it's, the sequences are identical. But they remember this had two copies of the gene, so the, you might say the left-hand copy could sometimes cross over the right. So you then go and cross out like when you make a three-gene, a, a triple out of a double, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that taught me that homologous crossing over was a predictable event. Mm -hmm. And that's what I began to think about when it came to the gene targeting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so, so then after that, I guess you went to Wisconsin after that, and yeah. it must have been in the thick of the 
development of, of sort of the molecular, yeah, well, the molecular basis and understanding of, of and, those. And then uh, moved from protein studies to yeah. DNA. Yeah. But it, but it was the original observation with these proteins that that triggered the interest, at least in homologous recombination. Yes, that's right. And, exactly. And, uh, so I, yeah. I, I, I then I began to th- because we then at that time we began to uh, I, uh, learned how to handle DNA from um, uh, uh, Fred Blattner in, in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. I took a sabbatical in Wisconsin, just moved up one floor. He was mm-hmm. on the floor above. And he taught me uh, a lot about DNA and how to handle uh, bacteria, bacteriophages, and uh, and then we started to clone human genes, and and we got the uh, the two fetal genes of hemoglobin G gamma and A gamma. There are the beta, there is an epsilon, an embryonic gene, and two fetal genes, and then a small. Uh, a minor hemoglobin delta, and then the main uh, beta chain is the main hemoglobin. But uh, and Tom Maniartis's group got got the beta chain uh, gene, and we cloned the two fetal genes. And then we found again evidence of crossing over there, and that sort of made me think: well, maybe we, now we have normal DNA here, and we have sickle cell patients here. Here and there's only one base pair difference. Maybe I can use this normal DNA to correct the other, and that's what I was trying to do when I began to do the to work on Chaka. And that took about from thinking about about it to getting it to work took about th- three years. Mm-hmm. But it, but the idea came from interestingly the idea of how to do it came from teaching, because um, I was teaching a course in molecular biology. And um, an article came out on the first description of what's called a transforming gene, a a piece of DNA that will, if you introduce it into a cell, the the cells, instead of growing on the dish and stopping growing when the dish is full, then these colonies would grow and make little heaps. Mm -hmm. So they they became sort of partly... Out of control, and that was the transforming gene. Mm-hmm. And and two guys, Michael Wiggler, and um, I've forgotten the name of the other person, but for the moment, have um, uh, worked our method to get get that. And their method, I realised if I adapted their method, I could use it to find out if homologous recombination was occurring. <laughs> so teaching gave me the idea of how to test whether uh, gene targeting would work. Interesting. Now, is, was Fred was the guy who got, also got you interested in flying? Is that the... No, is no, that the, no, no, no. But, well, well, you know, yeah. when, you, when you're on sabbatical, yeah. you're allowed to play a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And I decided to learn to fly at that time. Yeah. And so I took flying lessons while I was doing the sabbatical. Okay. Used to, you know, take the afternoon off and go flying. Yeah. It was only about two, three miles down the road of this airport. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting, and, and but so maybe Fred's the guy that, uh, and maybe we can't tell this story on, uh-huh. on film. But that you did some safety testing for uh, oh, for plasmids, yes, <laughs> yeah. Because that that was at the time. Now we're talking about the time when DNA was first possible to clone DNA, yeah. and people were worried. Uh, 
Um, Paul Berg, I think, was one of the pe people who thought that, the, that we better do this under conditions that were, uh, if if our DNA got spilt or whatever, mm -hmm. it couldn't be propagated. Mm -hmm. The idea was it might be dangerous. Mm -hmm. And so all sorts of ideas to make, to do these experiments with bacteria that were very weak or bacteriophages that were mutant and wouldn't grow unless you really pampered them and do it in containment place where there was negative pressure and all this sort of thing. And um, so uh, Fred uh, took that on. And it was a very interesting time because Fred is a very imaginative person. and. So that, uh, for example, at MIT, I think they built a, a containment room with negative pressure, mm -hmm. and it cost them twenty or thirty thousand dollars, or some some relatively yeah, big figure that, that time. Was time. It, yeah. and, and Fred just put, made a hole in the wall and put a kitchen fan there, <laughs> and it made a negative pressure <laughs> that fit the, <laughs> fit the uh, criteria. But then it, it came to testing, and he was developing a safe vector, a bacteria thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we had to test it. We would go to, uh, we'd go to the committee in Washington. There was a committee there at, at, at DC, and um, and NIH there, and they would review what you'd done, and how safe was it, or how unsafe it was, and uh, well, we got it so that. Uh, uh, compared to an ordinary uh, bacteria, it, this is a bacterial virus, a bacterial right, right. phage. Mm -hmm. in, in, in contrast to an ordinary bacterial phage, this would grow at 10 to the minus 6. It was a million times poorer grower. Right. And you had to grow it in special conditions. And then, and then they said, no, that's not good enough. You've got to go another notch. And they wanted another factor of 10 to the 3rd. Uh -huh. So we had to get 10 to the minus 9 now. And uh, so we decided to use a bacteria which was damaged, as it were, to grow the bacteriophage. So the bacteriophage is highly mutated and mm -hmm. needs special conditions to grow. And now the bacteria is highly mutated. Right. It needs special conditions. So now we had to prove that the bacteriophage real, that the bacteria really was harm. So mm. uh, Fred and I and, and uh, his, his postdoc uh, drank a, 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 cup, a cup full of the, of the bacteria in, in, a, in a glass of milk and uh, then uh, of course had to measure where it came out. <laughs> Come back to the lab with a little package and, and measure the, the, how the bacteria had, and the, and the, uh, the ones that we used, they were down um, uh, about uh, 10 to the minus 3 compared to an uh, unmutated bacteria. So we got 10 to the minus 9. And it was good enough for the committee then. Yeah, good enough. Good, good. And then that was approved. Good. Well, well so back to the, back to the, the uh, your uh, gene targeting project. So, yes, so you, yeah. had, you had the idea from, from, yeah. from the ability to correct the hemoglobin. And, and maybe talk a little bit about sort of the... What, what went on from What the, went on. Yeah, and, well, and the, uh, it, it worked. Yeah. So... We'd established that it was possible to target a gene. Mm -hmm. We didn't call it gene targeting then, mm -hmm. but that's what it later mm -hmm. became called. And um, but the frequency was very poor uh, relative to the starting cells. One in a million cells that you treated mm -hmm. would have the correct targeting, so it wasn't any use for gene therapy. And it still isn't. Uh, maybe someday somebody will make it useful, I mm -hmm. hope. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was obvious that it wasn't useful. Mm -hmm. But then Martin Evans um, 
uh, came out with uh, the um, uh, embryonic stem cells. And you could grow these in culture and you could get a mouse from them by following his procedures. So I, I, um, I realized that uh, we could use the gene targeting to alter a gene in these cells in tissue culture, embryonic stem cell, and then get a mouse with the mutant gene. Mm -hmm. And so I began to uh, work on that. I was interested in correcting genes, so my first experiments of that sort were correcting mm -hmm. uh, gene. And uh, Nabuyo Maeda, my wife, um, had a construct that uh, she'd made that l looked as if it would work. So we tried it, and Tom Deutschman came to the lab, and uh, and he did that experiment. And you know, sometimes things work first time. <laughs> it worked really. The first, <laughs> really? first experiment, and yeah. they got them. Uh -huh. We got these colonies that were, but we didn't realize what they were. What are, what's all this stuff? You know, but it was. It had worked, and yeah. these were the colonies we should get. Yeah. And uh, that was uh, gene correction. Now, Mario Capecchi, uh, who'd been doing gene targeting parallel, but uh -huh. quite independently, mm -hmm. we talked to mm -hmm. each other mm -hmm. at meetings mm -hmm. and things, mm -hmm. but we, didn't, we weren't collaborating or anything. He also went to talk to Martin Evans about the stem cells, mm -hmm. and we both, uh, you know, it's interesting how these things happen, because we both went to talk to Martin Evans within three weeks of the same time. And then we took us a couple of years to make it work, and then within three weeks we each published a paper on yeah. it working. Yeah. And so the, the timing was just right for it. For it. And, then, then that, and then people used the method then a great deal for knocking out genes. Right. Which is not what I used it for. I, I got more interested in the, uh, not uh, what genes do, but how they vary in the population. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, the way I put it is this, you look around and, and you see, that, what do you see? You see some people are tall and skinny and some people are short and wide and um, some have a big nose and some have a little nose, some have big... Everything is quantitative. Mm -hmm. It's not qualitative. That's to say, you're not missing a nose, you're not missing an ear. I mean, yeah. rarely. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so that I got interested in quantitative variations, and that got me into eventually into blood pressure mm. work. And uh, because uh, of the, it was because of well, it was actually because of the work of um, uh, let's see, who was it? Um, I've got a blank on the name of the person whose whose work it was. Pierre Corval, Pierre Cor Corval, uh, Pierre Corval. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, the and the person who did the did the actual work on the angiotensinogen gene. Anyway, they right. they discovered a polymorphism in the angiotensinogen gene, um, a methionine-threonine difference, mm. uh, which was associated with uh, in families with hypertension. The people who have the threonine form of the gene uh, were more likely to be hypertensive than those who had the methionine form. And so I thought, that, well, I'll change methionine to threonine in the mouse. But that experiment died on at birth. There wasn't a methionine there. <laughs> and so I realized it really wasn't the methionine-threonine difference that was important. It was probably 
the other thing that they observed, which were, there was a quantitative difference, mm -hmm. that the, the, the most more angiotensinogen, if you have the threonine, than when there was the methionine. And so uh, they began to change the amount of product of a gene, and that turned out to be the variable that was important there, not the sequence of the protein, mm -hmm. but the amount of it. And it, then later on, the, the methionine-threonine difference was shown to be associated with the promoter difference upstream. So the promoter, in, the promoter variant in front of the threonine gene was stronger than the promoter variant in front of the methionine gene. Mm -hmm. So it was a really a quantitative sure. thing. Sure. And I did then quite a lot of things on that. Mm -hmm. So, so you know, one of the things that's characterized your work in the last mm -hmm. couple of decades is, is or longer is that you've, you've shared a laboratory operation with your wife, Nabuya, oh, and, yes. and it's sort yeah, of been you your, that's been your life. And, yes, and, it, and, it, and maybe talk a little bit yeah, about well, that. Yeah, we're and, very and, happy, and, yeah. um, a happy marriage and yeah. a happy co collaboration because um, uh, she, she came to the lab in a sense by accident. And so I say Ronald Reagan is responsible for my marriage for happiness because um, uh, he, uh, he put a freeze on appointments and Nabuya was about to take a job as a postdoc and second postdoc at NIH and the, the appointments were frozen. And the person she was working with, Walter Fitch, hadn't any more money. <laughs> and so he called me and said, I've got this Japanese lady and... Uh, and she's very bright, and and she listens very politely to you, and and then she'll do what she wants. <laughs> but he said you might like to have her as a postdoc, so she came over as a postdoc, and that sometimes happens, you know. And eventually, we decided that we we needed a different relationship, and uh, then uh, so she was uh, around during the time when the gene targeting was getting going. Mm -hmm. And she told her, and she decided to work on lipoproteins because we had a friend uh, who had been studying um, pigs, uh, um, genetic differences in pigs, and there are some pigs uh, that develop atherosclerosis, and he found this was associated with a difference in in. Uh, in one of the apolipoprotein genes that make that's involved in making uh, high dense, um, making very low density lipoprotein particles, and so she decided to work out, try to work out what the difference was, and and that led her to look at the system, and and she began to realize that apolipoprotein E was important, and and she she knocked out the gene, and lo and behold. Atherosclerosis in a in a mouse in six months or less on a diet with almost no cholesterol, and so that was very exciting. And that's the work she continued in that work, and, and so she's doing this. And then she got grants to work on uh, on uh, lipoproteins and and atherogenesis while I was working on blood pressure. So we were doing things in parallel, using the same sorts of machinery, you might say. The d DNA work was similar, and the embryonic stem cells, we could use the same ones. So 
the work was completely independent, but yet uh, overlapped in the sense we could help each other. Sure, sure. No, and worked sure. very well. Yeah. It still continues yeah. to work well. So, so uh, in 2007, when, when you won the Nobel Prize, those of us who knew you were thrilled and excited. And, and uh, I know it was, a, it was an interesting experience yeah. for you. And maybe to talk a little bit about that in particular and, and well, what it's meant to your... Well, you know, people have been saying for years, well, when are you going to get the Nobel Prize, Oliver? And I've long since given up any thought of it because it's years have passed and it was now 20 years after the work had been yeah. done. You yeah. know, yeah. Well, obviously they've forgotten about it or they don't think it's important. Yeah. And then so, you, but uh, comes October and the beginning of October, you, you get woken at three o'clock in the morning by a, by a voice that has a Swedish accent. <laughs> you have some idea it might yeah. be. So that's what happened, and um, uh, and uh, he, he said uh, the guy who called me uh, said uh, it's it's taken a long time. He said, but there are many opinions and there are many candidates, but here you are. <laughs> and uh, then I asked him. I said, who was it with? And he told me it was with Mario Capecchi and Martin Evans, and uh, and that I was very pleased about that because I thought that that's what was the right combination. And, and how has it changed well, your life since then? Yes and no, that, yeah. really. Yeah. I think the answer is probably no, not really. Mm -hmm. um, but it's made it me possible to go and talk more to students around the world and go mm -hmm. to meetings where, sometimes quite big meetings, where there are a lot of students and then I can tell them a little bit about my history as a scientist and mm -hmm. And they come out there, they tell, come out, and they seem to be starry-eyed and so, so inspiring, and you know, words like that. And So I know that it's valuable to do that, and so I still do that. But um, otherwise, not much change. Well, I, I think people think I'm dead. You know? <laughs> well, we have evidence here that you're not. I don't have people knocking on my door to yeah. come to the lab. I, I wish they would yeah. knock a bit. Yeah. I, I like an, an, I'm a good nephrologist. All right, we can use this as an advertisement. Yeah, yeah we can. Yeah, yeah right. right. Well, but 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 you're. I mean, you're the, the actual the, the lecture that you gave as a part of the when yeah. when you received yeah. the prize really was addressed to the students. Yes, even it was. there yes, and stuff. That's right. Yeah, it taught me that this was a good, uh, this was a good way to talk yeah. to students. Yeah. They could understand them because some, I still work in the lab. I mean, today we're on a Friday afternoon. I've done two experiments this morning. Yeah. I mean, isn't it? I don't. I still do experiments. Yeah. 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 That's the way it is. That's been my enjoyment of science, yeah. really. Almost because if you're doing experiments, especially the sort of experiments that I like to do. You don't have to wait an enormous long time to get a result. You get a little boost or a little up. Or it can be down a lot of the time, but every now and then you get one that's up. Today was a very good day. It was yeah, good, a good up good. day. I good. learned a lot of things that I've been having trouble with, and good. I now understand good. something I didn't understand before, which is that's that when you get an experiment like that, you just, you know. It's a real boot. Yeah, yeah. And that's the, that's a joy of life. Oh, that? yes, yeah, that's yeah. the joy of science for me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Of course, you get, you get it doesn't go the way you like, but, it, well, it's a good gel. <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty gel. Yeah. I did the experiment well, but yeah. it didn't work. or yeah. worked the wrong way. I got the wrong answer. But, yeah. Yeah, so that, that's been, I think, for me, has been the... That's the biggest joy of science, doing it. Uh, it was a bit selfish in some mm -hmm. ways because 
I've never been chairman of anything or a director of this or that, and so it's been a little more a, almost a personal journey of, of, of a small. And that's been your I, I think of do, myself yeah. as a small scientist, really, in that sense. I mean, I don't have a big lab. In. I've had them. at one time. I had a fairly big lab. Yes, but uh, I don't anymore. But still work. And, and you've trained a lot of people who've gone yeah, on to, yeah. to do make yeah, contributions nice in science yeah, and. Very uh, good um, uh, and, and, I mean, did you have a particular philosophy or approach to, to trainees in your lab? Well, and, I yeah. think it was more or less to, to let people have the opportunity to do something that they thought was important. Because that's the way it had been for me, that I was, uh, when I was an undergraduate, uh, I was given freedom to work on uh, problem was suggested and then I was let loose as it were and um, that's the way in which but I found that uh, uh, in which I, I, I've been mainly de de having postdocs now but um, with the postdoc I found that the, for me the way to do is to try to give the postdoc a, a problem that is related to what the you might say the plan of the lab is all the total work, but make it that one the thing now you can help us with that, mm -hmm. but while you're helping us with that, you can dream up something of your own, mm -hmm. and then that would often happen, and you might say starting with if this is the full time work on something related to what we're doing, and then this would decrease and and then the other working on something that you're interested in, and then they go out of the lab. And they've got something yeah, that's yeah. theirs that they thought of, mm -hmm. and, that and that's happened several times. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can give two really uh, recent examples. Uh, well, one is not that recent. Uh, Simon John was uh, uh, was he in yeah, the yes, lab when you yes, were yes, in yes, the yes, lab? Yeah. Sure. Well, Simon John uh, was working on atrial natriuretic peptide mm -hmm. system. Uh, that was in relation to my work, right. and then he thought, well, this pressure business maybe it work in the eye, and he thought I can look at intraocular uh, pressure in the mouse, which mm -hmm. turned out to be quite difficult. Mm -hmm. And he started to do that in the lab, and then and then uh, developed marvelous genetic system. Yeah. And that next month, I think it's next month, I go to New York to celebrate him being given an award for his work on yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, and and then the other person I mentioned in this respect is Kathleen Caron, and she's yeah. just become uh, chair, chairwoman right. uh, of the Department of Physiology in, yes, in yes. Uh, UNC. And, and she did some work initially in relation to what I was interested in and then began to read on her own and came up with an interesting protein, adren uh, peptide, adrenomedulin. And this worked out to be very interesting and uh, completely of her own imagination while she was in this phase of the uh, work. And, and she's gone on with that and made a very good thing of it. Yeah. So those are two no, those are recent two examples, great examples of yeah, sure. Oh, and I, and I, and, um, and I trained uh, uh, my first graduate student, was also an MD, and he became the president of the Genetic Society of America. Mm -hmm. so. Now, while it's clearly the, now retired. the method worked, right? Yeah, the method worked. Yeah. Well, so, so we've talked a lot about 
science and and uh, well, you mentioned earlier that, that yeah. uh, one of your other passions has been flying yeah. airplanes over the years and maybe you oh, could well, tell us that, a little bit about what, know, the, what the attraction uh, was uh, there. Well, and what, uh, you know. it, it began very early but when I was about 13 or 14 I thought I, I would like to fly and, and then I took some lessons in uh, Toronto uh, when I, I went, I mean, that's interesting because it was scientific related. I, I went to, I was now in Madison, Wisconsin, and I went to Toronto to learn how to do not protein sequencing in that It still wasn't possible to do protein sequencing mm -hmm. at that time, but how to do a genetic, uh, do a, at least a bit of peptide sequencing and so on. Uh, and, um, which Gordon Dickon had been doing. Uh, he was one of the mm -hmm. two, uh, this bit convoluted, but he was one of the two students who who was, who was gave me blood and okay, later helped right, solve Hampton right, Globe. Sure. Mm -hmm. And I went there to, and I found, uh, and I, found I didn't like what it, the method. I thought, I'm not going to spend the rest of my life doing, <laughs> doing experiments that I don't like, so I might as well do something interesting. So I went down to Toronto uh, uh, Island Airport, which is just uh -huh. down the hill, uh -huh. as it were, to the Lake Ontario. And, uh -huh took flying lessons and, and I also learned something which I, I tell students about these days which is that I learned to overcome fear with knowledge that's it because nearly everybody or I don't know everybody but a high proportion of per persons who learn to fly are really frightened of it when they begin mm -hmm. uh, and I used to I mean when I was learning to fly instruments I, I used to sweat so much it would drip. So I remember one day turning to Field Murray and saying, you know, that was a good day, Field. Only one drop dripped. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't yeah. that I didn't yeah. stop sweating. Yeah. And I, when I was teaching, I became an instructor later on, and when I was teaching one student to um, uh, glide, and he used to sweat so much that his back would be absolutely sodden when he came, when we finished the lesson. And then when the time came for him to go by himself, when you go solo, it's an important part in a person's training, as it were, <laughs> yeah. um, he came back from flying the glider there and he, he turned to me and he said, look, Oliver, dry. Yeah. And, and, that, and, and then I say, that applies exactly the same message applies to science. People get worried about trying to try something new. They think they're frightened. Right there, or oh, those people are much smarter than I am. They can do it. I, I can't do that. But really, you can if you, with knowledge. You just have to get trained or yeah. do a little yeah. bit more reading yeah. or whatever. So yeah. that that same principle is there, overcoming fear of new sort of science, with knowledge of the new sort of science. Yeah. Which I remember yeah. you talking about the original. Um, Gene targeting discovery and the and the oh, blot coming yeah, out of the machine being a lot like yeah, uh, well, being a lot like you flying. see there yeah. was so much yeah. of, so much of the first experiments on that uh, that I was doing on gene targeting depended upon an a, a very convoluted assay. Mm -hmm. um, the best way to describe it is to think of the fact that I had a piece of DNA that was that I was going to use to introduce into a cell. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, let's call it, had a piece of G DNA that I could recognize, a blue piece of DNA. Mm -hmm. And I was going to hit a gene that had a red piece of DNA. So here's the blue and here's the red. 
that's on the gene, this is on the incoming DNA. If those two things come together, I've targeted them. Mm -hmm. So I was looking for blue coming next to red, but it was very convoluted, and, and, and we had got, went through a lot many steps, and then eventually got to the stage where we had some colonies that we were fairly sure would be now could be looked at by a less convoluted way. We could just do ordinary, isolate the DNA and do a southern block to mm -hmm. find the length of a, of a fragment. And if if we if the gene targeting hadn't worked, the fragment would be 11 kilometers long. And mm -hmm. if the gene target had worked, had worked, it would be seven kilometers long. So then uh, I did this. Uh, uh, my postdoc at that time, Ron Gregg, uh, mm -hmm. had been doing these experiments and I w developed the gel and, uh, with the southern blot and um, in, in, I'm colorblind and so uh, I would develop the film, in those days it was radioactive mm -hmm. and we did a, a, I developed the film, I, no point in turning the lights on because I can't see in the red light anyway. So I, you sit there d uh, dreaming and I thought, you know, this is just like flying on instruments. Here I've been, had this indirect approach to assaying, gene targeting, the convoluted assay. And uh, that's like being in an airplane where you have, a, 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 at least those days, more or less still, uh, you have a needle that that moves like this, and so if you're on on the vertical course correctly uh, in the correct plane, as it were, this direction, then the needle is like that. If you're off, it goes to one side, and then you have to fly to the needle. Now there's another needle which tells you whether you're high or low. So if the needle is down, you're too high, and so you have to keep these two needles crossed. So it's very indirect, but nonetheless, if those needles are crossed. You come out of the clouds, and there will be a runway. Uh, of course, there are procedures if there isn't, <laughs> but that's what you expect to do. So I remember thinking, you know, this is like I'm coming out of the clouds. I've all this indirect stuff, and then, and then, is is there going to be a runway? When I developed the film, there was the band in the right place. So I, that's my runway. And at the meeting I talked about it, that's what I, I said to the, it was a Gordon conference, said to the people at the conference. And so everybody then, when they got to their last slide and said, and this is my wrong place. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that, that was a little story uh, of flying in relation to, not, it's a quite good analogy really, yeah, because sure, sure. Uh, indirect signs and then a direct proof. Yeah. And, and that direct, was the direct yeah, proof yeah, that you direct could proof modify a the right runway the there. You know, that's pretty sure. direct. Sure. Yeah. And one sure. my band in the right place, that's pretty direct. Well, I think people should know, that. Uh, uh, think about uh, many times experiments don't work. And uh, what do you do? Well, uh, so you get a funny result. And most often, they, if you've got a result, uh, if you're trying some method, for example, a new method and it doesn't work, it's almost always you made a mistake. Don't mess around with the method uh, first. Assume you've made a mistake and, and try to correct it. And, uh, and then if you're working on a project and things don't, uh, or I, I think this is more of a relation to teaching that if you see a student uh, who's going to make a mistake and you can see the mistake they're going to make and it's going to cost them a couple of days, you don't say anything. 
they'll learn more from making the mistake than they will from uh, you jumping in and, and saying. And if it's going to be a, a couple of weeks of work they'll lose, well, you might just say, have you thought of so-and-so? And, -so? and uh, say, that's all you do, and, uh, and that lets them try again. And But then if it's going to be six months' work, you better get in there. And so the same way with flying, you see. That's why there's a good analogy there, because when you're t teaching a student, you, l you have to let them make mistakes because that's how they learn. They do something and it doesn't go quite right, so they do something different. You tell them what to do, of course. Mm -hmm. and then there, but there are times when you have to do something yourself. Mm -hmm. And so when I was learning to be an instructor now, now I'm, now I'm in, instructing, I've got a student here, I'm instructing the student, and Field Murray, who's my instructor, in, teaching me to be an instructor, <laughs> is in the back. And so I'm, this student is flying, and we're com coming into land, and, and she messes up, uh, which you expect uh, yeah. many times in learning. So you take over the controls and, and land the airplane yeah. or go around, whichever. And I remember doing that and then turning around to Field Murray and said, did, did I uh, take over at the right time? And he, he swallowed like this and said, well, I could have wished it had been half a second earlier. <laughs> this has been a blast for me. I really appreciate you doing this, and uh, thanks a lot. You've been listening to Annual Reviews Audio. For over 80 years, Annual Reviews has guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical, life, physical, and social sciences. Learn more at annualreviews.org. I'm Ana Rasquet-Paz. Thanks for listening.